I think our passage that we're going to study today is perfect for Thanksgiving Sunday. We are still in Romans. I was going to take a break from Romans and get back to it after Christmas. Uh, But instead, I'm going to take a break starting next Sunday. Because this passage, it completes his thought for one thing. But also, it's just perfect. It's perfect for Thanksgiving. It gets us to the exact halfway point in Romans. When I first started in Romans, uh, I had planned to be done early in 2012. Um, Our pace has changed a bit. It's just too dense. It's too full of good stuff to move that quickly. So we'll get back into it. We'll finish it. But I'm going to take my time because it is so good. And I thank you guys for hanging in with me as we study it together. But this will be our last Romans sermon this year. And it's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, if you want to, want to flip over there. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. As you're flipping over there, I'm going to tell you a story about my childhood. Because I know that's what you came here for, hear more about my childhood. This may come as a surprise to you, but I was kind of scrawny when I was a kid. Um, And when I think I was probably around 8 or 9 or 10, I'm not sure how old I was, I was with my family at a water park. I don't remember what water park it was. Um, But just picture scrawny little boy, um, not fond of heights at all. That's still the case. I don't ride roller coasters because of that. Um, Did not like heights, was not particularly... Uh, courageous or brave at the age of nine or ten years old. My brother and my dad were going to go to one of those water slides, not one of the tubes that goes around, and it's fun, one of the terror death slides that goes straight down and then shoots you into water, and that's it. It's just... I do not understand the appeal of those slides today, but I went with them. It was a huge line. It must have been a Saturday or holiday. It was a huge line stretched all down the steps, all the way down to the main level. I stood there with my dad and my brother, who just towered above me because I was so little. And all the way up, probably took 30 minutes of waiting, got to the top. Mom said that she happened to look up and see me at the top of that thing. I I don't remember how tall it was. If my memory is at all representative, it was probably 15 miles tall. Um, Mom happened to look up and see this tiny little white figure at the top of that right when it was my turn. Dad and my brother were going to let me go first. So it was one of those slides where you're supposed to keep your feet crossed and your legs crossed at your chest. Have you done these before? Except for your one arm that's hanging onto a bar. And then you let go of the bar, sealing your fate, going down this straight down slide. So mom happened to look up and see me while I was there hanging onto the bar, scared to death. I, I remember being absolutely terrified. I have a terrible memory. I don't remember much. Of my childhood, really, but I remember this. I was terrified. But I did let go, and I did go down the slide, and I was terrified the entire trip down the slide, and I never have gone down such a slide again, but I did let go. Now, what enabled me to let go? Because I did think about I could just pull myself back up and go down the steps. Yes, it'd be humiliating. I'm fine with that at this point. What enabled me to let go and go down the terrifying water slide? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think I just remember thinking of a couple of things that were true. There was a huge line of people in front of me that went down the water slide. There were no ambulances around. All of those people survived it. This slide was designed for people to go down and survive. 
So even though it doesn't look like I could make it, that I could survive this stupid contraption, water slide, why do we humans do these things? No other animal builds something to terrify themselves. (laughs) But I remembered a couple things that were true. Many others have done it and survived. It was designed for this purpose. It must be okay. So I let go. I remember my back not touching that slide at all until the bottom. I don't remember feeling the slide at all. But I made it. Now what we have today, this does, have, this does pertain to the scripture. What I have for you today is one truth. That if we can absorb it and remember it, it will enable us to let go and just live. To just let go of the bar and just live. So just one truth. It's going to be a simple sermon this time. And it's from this passage, Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Just a simple expression of honor. This is a book unlike any other book. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. You can already tell this is a powerful passage of Scripture. I love it. I love Romans chapter 8. Yeah, I've been very open about my wrestling with anxiety lately. I try to be open with you so you'll be open with each other. Romans chapter 8 has been destroying my anxiety. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. And I hope that this one truth that we're going to hear today will indeed enable you to just let go of whatever it is that you're hanging on to that's keeping you from just living your life abundantly for Jesus Christ. So the one truth, did anybody pick out what you think the one truth is from that passage? It's right at the very beginning. Verse 31 What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That word, if God is for us, could be translated since God is for us. The one truth, the big point, the sermon in a sentence, Christians, God is for you. God is for you. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have been adopted as God's son, Through Jesus Christ. God is for you. Now that simple truth could change your entire life.
having someone to be for you can make all the difference. Some of you are in high school. A couple of you, all of you went to high school, even if you didn't all finish. In high school, if you were not the popular kid, you're not the powerful kid on campus. If you're the kid who gets made fun of and bullied, would it not make all the difference if the popular kids befriended you and they were for you? On a high school campus, if those people are for you, who could stand against you? Or think of it in a work context. I've shared with you before about my brother. My brother's taller than me and bigger than me, and he's my exact negative in terms of color scheme. Jet black hair, olive skin. Otherwise, we look similar. (laughs) But my brother is amazing at getting in really good with his boss's boss's boss. Somehow, he's worked his way up. He works for a bank. And his bosses, bosses, bosses love him, and they always have. And so that just gets, I mean, he's just cocky. I mean, who could stand against him? His bosses, bosses, bosses are for him. Who could stand against him? He's told me a billion stories about how his immediate boss didn't like something he was doing. And he said, well, did you ask your boss about it? Because we talked about it over lunch the other day. And he said it was fine. It makes a big difference If someone powerful is for you, for your good, actively engaged in trying to make things good for you. And this truth here is that God is for you if you are a Christian. He's for you. He's not against you. So who can stand against you? But not just who. Paul makes it plain that he's not just talking about people. He's just personifying adversity in general. So not just who could stand against you if God is for you, what could stand against you if God is for you. And he lists 20 things throughout the passage. He lists um, someone bringing charges against you, accusing you of things, someone condemning you, trying to shame you, make you uh, feel or seem guilty, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Um, On down, he mentions life or death, angels or rulers, things present, Things to come, powers, um, height or depth, anything else in all creation. These 20 things just represent everything. So the question, the rhetorical question, who or what could stand against you if God is for you? The answer is nothing. Nothing could possibly stand against you if God is for you. So now that you know that God is for you, I just have two points to the sermon how God is for you, and how that affects you. How God is for you and how that affects you. How exactly is God for you, actively working for your good? Now, the passage gives us two ways. He, first off, he gave us Jesus. He gave us his son. And secondly, he took our guilt and made us innocent. So that first one, he gave us Jesus. We see that in verse 32. He, meaning God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The fact that he gave us Jesus, it proves a couple of things. One, it proves that he loves us. He's not just tolerating us. He loves us. Most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved 
the world that he gave a lot of money. He gave a lot of opportunities for fun and entertainment. He gave a good economy so people could live comfortably. No, his, his number one, his main, his primary demonstration of his love for us was that he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And it proves that he loves us. He doesn't just tolerate us. And that makes all the difference in the world, just that alone. If someone that you love, a parent or a spouse, if you can just tell that they don't love you, they're just tolerating your presence. That's crushing. That doesn't do you any good. A lot of people treat Christianity that way. You, know, you sulk into a worship service. You're like, oh, God's got to be just sick of me and my struggles and my weakness. How much longer is he going to tolerate all this? But he's not tolerating us. He loves us deeply. And he proves it by giving his son Jesus Christ. It also proves that he's generous. He's not stingy. How many of you had stingy parents, or especially a stingy dad? If your dad's in here, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay, a couple people raise their hand. Did I tell you about the, I told you about the, the heartwarming talk my dad gave me after I graduated. The, it's no longer my responsibility to finance your dreams talk. I like to use that because, you know, he, he actually did help finance my dreams quite a bit. And he just talks tough. But our dad, our father, he is not stingy. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be his sons. So follow the logic, Paul's logic. If God gave his son for you, what in the world would he withhold from you? I mean, he already gave you his son. I love you all very much but I'm not going to give Elias up for you. I'm not. In fact, a lot of pastors do give up their children for the ministry. But I'm not going to do that. God's not called me to do that. He did that for you. He gave up his son for you. So, if he gave you his son, obviously he's generous. Obviously he's highly motivated Highly motivated to give up a lot for your good. So what would he withhold from you? Think about, think about your thing, whatever your thing is, your situation, your prayer request that you just are getting so frustrated that God is not answering. It's your financial situation, or it's your children, or it's uh, some other relationship, or it's your, your situation with work. Your thing. That you desperately want God to do something specific. And you've been praying about it and nothing's been happening. Now, if God made the huge leap from the, his throne in heaven in the form of Jesus Christ to a, an animal manger, would he not take that one little step to give you what you're asking for if he really believed that's what was good for you? If he gave us his son, would he not... Give to you this thing you're asking for if that really was indeed good for you? I mean, that thing, the thing that you wrestle with that you want God so badly to... to I'll just, I, I use myself as an example because I know myself better than I know anybody else. Makes sense? Let's just take the anxiety struggle. I know you guys can relate to emotional problem struggles. 
you know, why when I first cried out, God, just take this from me. I just want to be at peace and be joyful. Why, didn't he not, why did he not just take it away from me? Could he have? Yes, he certainly could have. Does he love me enough to do something like that? If it really would be best for me? Yes, he loves me enough. So there must be some reason. There must have been some reason that he didn't just zap it away from me. In your thing, there must be some reason behind it. You following the logic? Not a single head nod. Not a good sign. We are, as Christians, we are children with a dad who says yes as often as possible, but sometimes has to say no. I I really want to be that kind of dad, the kind of dad that says yes as often as possible. Because sometimes I'll have to say no, and I don't want my kids to doubt my love for them in those moments when I have to say no. I don't want them to be like, oh, you you don't love us. You never give us anything. You're stingy. You're just tolerating us. Our God loves us and is generous and says yes as often as he possibly can. But he knows better than we do what's best for us. So he can't say yes to all of our prayers. It makes all the difference in the world to know that God is for us, that he's in control, that he loves us, that he's generous. Just like it would make all the difference in the world to know that that person cutting you open is a surgeon and not some madman. So we know that he's for us because he gave us his son. We know that he's for us because he took our guilt and made us innocent. That's found in verses 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, as much as Jesus had to go through for us, he's not bitter about it. I mean, he he went through a lot for us. He's not holding that over our head in bitterness. He's actually praying for us right now, interceding for us right now. That's why we as Christians, our ministry is reconciliation, not condemnation. You know, there's a heavy perception out there that Christians are mainly about condemnation. That we're like on the lookout for other people's sins so we can yell at them about it or gossip about them and condemn them. For whatever reason, I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to people about the whole homosexuality debate lately. And by and large, they've all been amazed that I don't come in guns slinging, condemning anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Because we're not given the ministry of condemnation. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. People don't need to hear from us condemnation. We all walk around with it. We're all soaked in guilt. We all know we're messed up. What we have is Jesus Christ, the one way to be cleansed from our sin. He's the one who took our condemnation for us. So we know God is for us because he gave us Jesus who took the charges that we deserved. During that false trial, that night before he was killed, he took the condemnation that we deserved. He died the death that we earned. 
so that in him our condemnation is gone. God could have held that against us, held our condemnation against us, but he didn't. He's clearly for us, not against us, not tolerating us. He loves us. So that's how God is for us. Now, how it affects us. We'll find this in the last, from verses 39, uh, 35 through 39. I'll just read it, and then I'll tell you. Starting at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'll repeat that verse. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How does God being for us affect us? It makes us more than conquerors. Christian, you are more than a conqueror in light of your adversity. Now, what in the world does that mean, more than a conqueror? Well, what does a conqueror do? A conqueror defeats his enemy, and typically that enemy is either killed and gone or vanquished and gone. But we're more than that. See, in Christ Jesus, our enemy, actually, we don't need it to be gone because God uses it for our good. To put flesh on it, remember Osama bin Laden? He was big a few years back. A major enemy. Now, we are conquerors because we killed him and we dumped his body into the ocean. We will never have to deal with Osama bin Laden again. Now, if America had been more than conquerors in this sense... We wouldn't have needed to have killed him. It would have turned out that all the while, all of his plots against us and his terrorist attacks were actually good for us. It would, it would come out that actually all those people that we thought had been killed in 9-11 weren't killed at all, but they've just been on some exotic vacation. And everything he had tried to do against our nation had actually been benefiting us. Now, that wasn't the case. He was a real enemy. He needed to go. But what the Bible teaches is you don't have to just cope with the bad things in your life. You don't have to figure out a way to just cope with your tribulation and your trials and your distress. You don't even have to figure out a way to conquer it. It's already been conquered, and it's working for you. Now, this is a radically different way to think than we're used to. We're used to getting away from our distress at any cost. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches... That distress is working for you. It's not that God is for us even in our suffering. It's that God is for us especially in our suffering. These 20 things don't separate us from Christ's love. They actually separate us from all of our false loves, all the counterfeits, all the things we waste our lives pursuing. None of these things can separate us from Christ. For a Christian, they drive us into Christ. And in that respect, they're working for us, for our good. It's also in these things that we 
that our identity with Jesus is forged. Do you realize in this list, I'm kind of reading into it here, so take this for what it's worth, but Jesus experienced all of these 20 things on our behalf. The charges and condemnation I already mentioned, that illegal trial where they charged him with blasphemy, and then he took on our condemnation on the cross. He did that for us. The tribulation and distress. You remember when Jesus was sweating drops of blood in the garden before his crucifixion for us? The persecution. Do you remember when Jesus was mocked and beaten for us? The famine and nakedness. You know, Jesus was homeless. And then when he died, he died naked in front of everybody, nailed to a cross. Danger and sword. He faced the mob and death for us. So it's in these 20 things that God actually proves his love for us through Jesus Christ. It's in these 20 things that we most closely identify with Jesus Christ. There was a book a while back called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I know many of you have wrestled with that same question. Maybe even for yourself. I've been going to church. Why is this happening to me? I tithe to my church. Why is this happening to me? As though our good works put God in our debt. Listen to what Peter said about this. I'm going to read to you real quick. You don't have to flip there. From 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 through 23. He says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if... When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's the main verse. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. To this we've been called. And I heard a pastor I really respect recently say that the best advice anyone ever gave him in ministry was, prepare your people for suffering. Because we are going to suffer. We've been over that. I don't have to go back through that again. We shouldn't be shocked at it. And we shouldn't divert all of our energy to scrambling away from it. Because all of God's best gifts are wrapped in suffering. It's our enemy's gifts that look all sparkly and nice. Our enemy wraps his gifts in comfort. But when you open it up, what you find is a wasted life. A life disconnected from God. A life sufficient in yourself with no need for Christ. So I'm going to wrap this up actually with a quote from someone from our church. I got permission to use this. Facebook people, this is for you. Uh, This was the Facebook status of one of our younger people at the church who's away at college right now. So you may be thinking, well, this is super saint stuff. This is for... For, you know, the missionaries. This is for the um, people who've been to seminary. This is for the people in full-time ministry. I just want comfort. I don't want suffering so I can grow closer to Jesus. I just want comfort. That whole suffering to grow closer to Jesus thing is for the super saints. Well, this is from one of our college-age people who is away at school right now. This is her status update the other day. She wrote, About to make my status ready for life to be easy. But then I thought, The harder life becomes, the deeper my need for Jesus. 
I'm so blessed for every single time of struggle, loneliness, difficulty, and every plan gone awry because I've grown in Christ infinitely with each. There is no greater relationship than the one we have with God. And I was angry because she said in one concise status update what I've been working on saying for a month of sermons. God is for you. He loves you and is generous. You are more than conquerors of your troubles. So we can give thanks to God this Thanksgiving. We can rejoice in our suffering. We can let go. We can live. If you are in Jesus Christ. This is a promise for Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being for us when you had every reason to be against us. Thank you for giving us your son. Help us to know, to sink into the fact that you know better than we do what's best for us and that you love us more than we can understand and that you're capable of doing anything. So help us to just let go and live under your care as your sons, like Jesus did. Help us to walk in his footsteps. It's in his name we pray. Amen.